something that's presently occurring. And then if you're not, if your mood is such that you're feeling blue, Shirodang Heidang, Heiti Ejang, Heiti Ejang, I'm feeling low, I'm feeling low. So anyway, the last one, number nine, was that Aji Wadluwanu Gudath Kiwagn. All these things are related and need each other to survive. Well, that's all we got for this week, so maybe we can play a little bit of blues and we'll see you next week. How are uh, for being here? Welcome to November 28th on the Arts Report, CITR Arts Report. It's 5 o'clock on Wednesday. We are listening on CITR 101.9 or perhaps on CITR.ca or perhaps on a podcast after the fact. I'm talking to you in the future. Now today we have three and now four uh, very special uh, subjects to attend to. We'll be talking about art punk at the Satellite Gallery. We'll be talking about a uh, very cool-looking event, Anamnesia, at Vivo tomorrow night. Talking about chunking at the Shadbolt Center tonight. And first up, we have another edition of our UBC Arts Report with Nicole Kai. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Hi, it's me again. And uh, tell us what we'll be talking about today. So today we're going to talk about, uh, well, well, we're actually going to be talking with um, Guaki um, about this theater project called Changing the Lens. And um, yeah, it sounds pretty cool, but can you just explain to us what it is? Sure, thank you. So basically, Changing the Lens is a UBC Forum theater project, and the idea is that it's a student initiative that aims to use the techniques of forum theater, which is an interactive, an audience interactive type of theatre to explore issues which are crucial and relevant to the UBC community. And it's the idea is that through performances and through workshops on these issues, we'll be able to create an avenue for dialogue within the entire UBC community and not just within each faculty or within each school, but as a community to talk about these issues. And so, Guaki, you're one of the creators of Changing the Lens, correct? 
Yes. <laughs> and so how did it all start? And you talked about um, this being forum theater. And what, what is that? Can you explain to us? Sure. So the idea kind of came out from my experiences with forum theater as a student at UBC. And from this idea, um, we looked for a team that was interested in using theater and using forum theater. And from there, the project was kind of born. So forum theater is, it's a little bit complicated to explain, but have you ever been in a theater and wanted to change what was happening on stage? Well, forum theater gives you the opportunity to do that. So the idea is that we run through a play from start to finish. And then when the play is run through a second time, audience members get to stage get to shout stop and go on stage and replace a character and try out a solution to change what is happening on stage. Wow, that sounds very avant-garde to me. Um, So what is the message that you're trying to convey through this project? Well, as the name suggests, we're trying to change the lens. We're trying to move away from a very... We're trying to move away from the separation and isolation of each faculty on campus and really move the community towards creating a healthy dialogue that's going on between staff and students, between faculty and students and staff, and between art students and science students, basically breaking down barriers and creating a healthier dialogue on issues that are really important to us. So, for example, this year, the theme is cultural cultural identity and assumptions Mm -hmm. and so our tagline is ever get tired of being asked where are you really from Mm -hmm. um and the response has been phenomenal so far people have written in to us saying that they often get asked this question and if you check us out on facebook or at our website you can find more information about the project there as well. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of us, especially um, the community at um, UBC, um, have very complex cultural identities. Mm-hmm. Someone might, might be born in one place but raised in another place but now goes to school here or mm-hmm. their parents are from different countries but then they're raised in a third country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's like... If you were to just ask them where you're from or where you're born or where's your parents from, it's just, it's a long story to tell. Mm-hmm. The, you, I find that asking those kind of questions can both help to create dialogue, but if you ask it in a wrong way, it can also be very offensive because mm-hmm. with the nature of globalization and Canada's multicultural society, it is really crucial to address these issues um, in a sensitive but not overly politically correct manner. And that's why this year the theme is cultural identity. Nice. So what has been your favorite aspect of this project so far? Um, (laughs) I think it would be be getting the amount of responses from the UBC community. Um, We've been getting replies from not just students, but alumni, faculty, staff members. It's it's both really heartening to see the response to the project and also kind of sad because the fact that this is such a crucial ident- 
um, this is such a crucial issue for so many people, but yet there have been no projects to really address the wide scope of the complexities within it, I think. And you talked about um, getting responses. So how can we respond to... Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> um, so again, our application form for workshop participants can be found on our website or if you email us at changinglelens at gmail.com, um, we'll be happy to provide you with a copy of the workshop uh, with the workshop application form. And anyone can apply. You don't have to be a theatre student. You don't have to be from any major as long as you're willing to come and share your experiences and to play as a group, um, that is completely fine. Yeah. And what what's basically what um, what is involved um, with um, if you were to sign up for to be a workshop participant? Mm-hmm. As a workshop participant, we would require you to commit six Sundays in January and February. The exact dates um, will be from January the 13th and then six consecutive Sundays. Um, it will run from 12 to 6 p.m. And the idea is that through these workshops, we'll be creating, we'll be working on team building, activating the group consciousness, and also um, devising plays from scratch. So it may sound kind of intimidating, but all these workshops will be facilitated, so don't worry about it. And no experience is required, right? No experience at all is required. You just have to be interested in the topic. Cool. So if you're interested and want to find out more about uh, Changing the Lens, you can find them on Facebook by just searching Changing the Lens or shoot them an email at changingthelens at gmail.com and... Stay tuned, I guess. Thank you. All right. Well, we are going to take a a quick and early break, and we will be back to talk a little bit about chunking at the Shadbolt Theater tonight through December 1st. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, and that changing the lines sounds really intelligent and very interesting, and I can't wait to see it. Thanks, girls. CITR 101.9 FM is pleased to invite you to a birthday party celebrating 75 years of campus and community radio excellence for 30 years on the FM dial and 30 years of the Scorter magazine. We've got a lineup of bands and exhibits to celebrate CITR's 75-year history of independent radio and support of local independent music, including Miss Marr and Friends, Culture Shock, Fine Mist, Channels 3 and 4, Karen and Mark, and the new Best Friends and More. Doors open at 8, bands at 9, Tickets for $10 in advance or $12 at the door plus voluntary donation. This party is one part of our alumni weekend. And if you are an alumni, past volunteer, or current member, or are connected to the history of the station, this event is for you. For more details, visit CITR.ca. Are you a current UBC grad student? If so, then listen up, because the Graduate Student Society lets UBC grads book rooms and spaces in the newly renovated grad student building. Be sure to take advantage of what the facility has to offer. The rooms come equipped with sound systems and can host up to 300 people. Even better, as grad students, you don't have to pay booking fees. Not a grad? Don't worry. The Tia Corner House is open to the public, as in the Kerner Pub, opening earlier next year. 
For more information, contact Booking Manager Rob at bookings at gss.ubc.ca. Hi, I'm Province Entertainment columnist Stuart Dardane. And when I'm looking for a little bit of inspiration to find out where the arts are, I go to CITR's Arts Report on Wednesdays from 5 to 6. And I actually ran into Stuart last night at Shindig. It was the last semifinal last night at the Railway Club. And next week it's the finals uh, with this last week's winner praying for Greater Portland. So please come by. All the CITR staff will be there. And it's uh, it's time for a little bit of dress up and a little bit of mess up. So uh, wear, wear the best clothes you are okay with getting beer on and come see the Shindig finale. All right. So uh, tonight I have the pleasure of seeing uh, a show with the Plastic Orchid Factory called chunking november 28th 29th 30th and december 1st at the shadbolt center in burnaby beautiful british columbia and chunking if you don't already know is a psychological process so it's a a memory process whereby uh, you group like objects but also you um, remember things in groups um, some things that might sound familiar to the the lay psychologist would be the idea that we only remember, you know, around seven things at a time. But if you put those things together, if you connect them as a like group and a memory, then you can remember. So a phone number is only one piece of information, for example. Um, so... From Wikipedia, there's a little quote that I liked. Individuals that exhibit the chunking process in their responses are forming clusters of responses based on relatedness or perceptual features. Very fancy. But here's what I like. The chunks are often meaningful to the participant. So chunking is also happening tonight. A dance conversation about memory. It's a, it's a Star Wars-inspired multimedia ballet. And according to uh, one of the main dancers, artistic producer of Plastic Orchid Factory, and co-founder, it's a playful, physical, inviting experience. Natalie uh, Nam uh, talked to us a little bit about chunking and about both producing and dancing uh, this really interesting event. Um, one of the things that uh, you might be interested in at home besides the dance is some of the people who are involved. It is a multimedia event, including Kevin Laguerre and Scott McPherson um, on uh, sound design, and they are a part of local uh, band Death by Sexy. We'll play a little bit of their stuff later. We also have the very talented James Proudfoot, who does really interesting avant-garde stuff for uh, various uh, places like Beggar's Opera. And um, uh, and then uh, Bevan Poole, who's an independent art- artist, as well as James and Connor Nam. James and Connor Nam are both uh, ballet dancers, as is Natalie. And so this is a ballet-inspired contemporary multimedia experience based on James and Connor's memories, specifically and generally, Star Wars.
So the piece centers on memory, uh, especially the memories of Connor and James, brothers. And like any brothers uh, of a certain age, Star Wars, uh, science fiction, and those type of uh, childhood movie memories factor really highly into their past. But it strikes me the memories of brothers and Star Wars and science fiction, these are very masculine areas. So are we going to see a very masculine piece or did you bring balance to that? No, I think it's definitely very balanced. I mean, in the piece, there are two males dancing, obviously James and Connor, and then there are four females. So right there, there's already more of a female component um, than a male component. And that was definitely a premise for the piece, like a like a starting point. I think for James, he was really interested about how the role of memory in our lives um, is so interesting and how that could relate to a dance performance. So it de definitely did develop from those memories of, um, of Star Wars and ballet with his brother. But to be honest, I've, I, have, I have very shared memories. I mean, Star Wars was a huge part of my growing up too, and I have a brother, so I can relate very closely to what he was proposing. And I think um, all of the artists involved in the work have some kind of it triggers something for each of us that whole era and even just um the idea of of media and television and how we how we interfaced with uh with our lives then and now and and how that affects our memory and our ability to retain information and all of that feeds in and i think um yeah i definitely relate to it very closely well, Star Wars, it's funny, is at this point quite the combination of futuristic and the past of a whole generation. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you've incorporated that into the piece itself. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you've blended these kind of classic and futuristic elements? It's a very, it's a very playful piece. And so there's, there's a play on the way the space is set up. It's very formal, but... Um, but there's a real uh, recall of the format um, of television when it was a 4 by 3 screen versus the 16 by 9 that we have now. So okay. most of our generation growing up had a different format that they looked at, right? So a lot of the set and uh, design was influenced by that, as well as costuming that is reflective of Star Wars and something very futuristic and space-like and a bit, I don't want to say sterile, because it's not sterile, but there's a real sense of that kind of um, very clean lines that mm -hmm. that Star Wars reflected then, you know, but it really was a starting point. I don't know if the piece is necessarily about Star Wars, you know, maybe somebody will see that, I'm not sure. Everybody's interpretation will be different, I think, from this piece, and that's what we hope. That's what we hope, is that it's it's a chance for people to kind of engage in a really playful little puzzle where they are finding themselves chunking the piece, right? Chunking little bits of it and, and recalling it later and, and coming back to different memories that they have. And so each journey will maybe be different, hopefully. Plastic Orchid Factory incorporates multimedia as part of their practice. Does the multimedia element add or multiply for you as a classically trained dancer? Hmm. Yeah, and I think for... For us, we find it really interesting and engaging to collaborate with um, artists who are not dancers. We feel it really feeds the process in a very positive way because it offers different perspectives. And James himself comes from a background of visual arts as well as dance, so he's always 
when he's choreographing, he's always considering more than just the steps. It really is a design and a concept that he's working with when he's when he's creating a new work. And so, for him, it's it's almost a necessity to have um, to have collaborators from other media come in and and be a part of the process because it really stimulates his process and and adds to what through dance we're trying to say which you know through dance it, it's very abstract and I think with the media it can it can provide a different element for people to relate to and in a way make the piece and the work uh, more accessible and having had the fortune of being in the space um, for a, you know a couple of weeks leading up to the premiere uh, we've really been able to uh, integrate ourselves into the environment and so it feels quite it, it's definitely integral to the piece, and we're all very much aware of it. And um, it, it it has become very much a part of what is fueling our interactions with one another and with the space. Absolutely, but it it certainly doesn't feel at all like a hindrance. In fact, it it really has helped evolve the 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 language of the piece. And also, I think um, you know it's always hard to tell from the inside, of course. But we hope too that from the outside, it it will provide. Um, context for people as well at the same way it provides it for us inside of the work so yeah I know it's it's definitely been something we've all adapted to but in a in a very positive way like very open to it it wasn't it didn't feel restrictive at all it's a puzzle it's and it's a fun puzzle and we're hoping that people will have that experience that they'll, that they'll come with their imaginations and and their willingness to to play I mean we have these three questions that we're asking are you human do you like to play and do you remember stuff if you do, then this is a piece for you. And that is Death Death Too Sexy, who is the who is the uh, band formerly of one and two of the sound designers in Chunking. So, if you are interested in seeing this multimedia ballet with stormtroopers, plastic tutus, LED tiaras, and very physical technical dance. You can check it out at the Shadbolt Center for Arts, November 28th, 29th, 30th, and December 1st. Um, you can also check out uh, online Plastic Orchid Factory. And just like the name sounds, um, it is a com- it's a, a troupe that is a combination of you know the the malleable modern product, uh, the organic sensual symbiotic. Um, living thing and of course it's a production from a factory thank you so much to natalie for telling us a little bit about chunking and uh, we are going to listen to a little death by sexy and when we return we'll be talking to uh the wonderful cecily from uh an amnesia unforgetting this is a show that's happening vivo tomorrow night please stay tuned 
Amnesia, Unforgetting. This is a series of documentary and restorative events that has been happening at Vivo Media Arts Center from November 15th to tomorrow night. Uh, this is, uh, Vivo is one of the oldest media access artist-run centers and is a series of screenings from uh, videos from the eight, 70s to 80s collected uh, through early satellite video exchange program. So we have three sets of curation uh, about around this theme of anamnesia unforgetting. On the 15th, we had Alex Murrow. On the 22nd, it was uh, Donato Mancini. And tomorrow night, we have Cecily Nicholson. Uh, she will be presenting a set of restored video documents from 1973 to 1979. This is from the Vivo website. And uh, they address the Oglala Sioux and American Indian Movement stand at Wounded Knee. Uh, there will also be a reading from Winnipeg-based uh, Anishinaabe writer uh, Marie Anaharte. And we are lucky enough to have on the line Cecily, who is going to speak to us uh, a little bit about the Anamnesia Project and specifically her event that's happening Thursday the 29th. Uh, Cecily, are you there? I am, yeah. Oh, it's lovely to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Now, um, I wanted to uh, first get a little bit of context about this series mm -hmm. and about the idea of anamnesia and memory. It's uh, it's actually quite the theme. We have a 1970s, 80s kind of theme and a memory theme that kind of all mm -hmm. blend together as well, um, this show. So if you could tell us a little bit about that concept. Sure. Um, I mean, I think in some ways you can kind of take that up. Um, the, the, the terms itself are complex and weighty enough in terms of unforgetting this idea of anamnesia. Um, when you're confronted with an archive, um, which is vast, you know, there's 4,500 titles um, that are, you know, documented and, and stored there, not to mention all the ephemera and various materials still in boxes. And um, so there's this vast sort of content to approach. And I think we were trying to understand how to go about doing that in a meaningful way that narrowed it down. But at the same time, you know, the three of us as curators also working with Vivo and um, um, Sharon Bradley and, and Amy Kazimierczyk of Vivo, um, trying to figure out a, a cohesive project. So um, this theme, we ended up talking quite a lot about time. And um, I wondered, it, it maybe it just, it's a, a term that actually came up in, in a, like, so we've, we've made these, these programs, but we've also um, written a book, an art book that will be launched in, in January and uh, created a website to sort of um, call all the materials together. And, and um, the written content in that, there's essays from each of the curators. And the essay that Donato Mancini contributed actually has the, the concept of anamnesia explained in it. And so, yeah, so a lot of us read that and drew from that, um, thinking it through. Um, yeah. Now, can I, um, can I ask the idea of unforgetting um, is connected to the idea, I guess, of, of 
something that's been lost and then bringing it to the fore, but there must be an interpretive aspect to that as well. Absolutely, yeah, in terms of, um, you know, how, how you select to what to bring to fore and how, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it's a, it ends up being a lot more complex. There's nothing straightforward about that. And I think, I mean, for me, my program, um, so yes, it, the five of the documents focus on the uh, Oglala Sioux stand at Wounded Knee and the American Indian Movement involvement there. Um, but the five other films are, are attached in different ways, and some of them are local to Vancouver, protests that were occurring in Solidarity here around Leonard Pelche's extradition, um, some films that dealt with civil rights movement stuff. So I have an um, aspect of a speech from Angela Davies at the time, a, a document that deal, details um, the, the inside and, and uh, interviews with um, prison inmates um, in a prison in San Francisco at the time. And so there's different themes for me, asylum, um, you know, incarceration, these kinds of things, also factoring in. And so there's a really deliberate effort at looking at something like Wounded Knee, which most people have some sort of popular understanding, brief understanding of what that moment was. Um, the depth of that and the complexity of the perspectives on that um, in many ways is, is lost or, or obscured by, um, you know, 30 years of, of pretty repressive history around it. So, yeah, so there is, um, it's definitely an interpretive thing, um, and particularly with my documents because um, they were restored for the process of, of viewing, but many of them were still... Um, not, we're not, we weren't able to use the full content. Um, so I wasn't able to do a screening um, of the 10 videos that I chose. I had to, and I ended up eventually doing um, an edited piece. Um, and so that was uh, definitely a didactic is enacted in that process as well. And so there's a, quite a uh, deliberate um, choice that's being made around how I've put these pieces together, um, which I suppose will become more obvious tomorrow night. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. So it's an extension kind of, I mean, you know, when you're curating something, when you're creating, uh, especially from, um, we are going to talk about um, next in the show, uh, Lenore Herb from uh, from Vancouver in the, in the 1980s and 90s, and there's an archive up uh, at Satellite Gallery. And when you're curating from, a, from a, a selection of documents, that in itself, you're choosing what, from your point of view, um, and uh, your education, what you find is interesting around and, and important around this one topic. And then I guess through the idea of restoring and editing, editing video, that didactic, that teaching, is I guess that's even more um, intensified. Absolutely. I, yeah. I, 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 there's something I was thinking about when I was studying about the idea of nation building being based very much on the idea of forgetting because mm-hmm. most nations um, are based on the takeover of another nation. And so you have to kind of forget in order to feel connected to that nation. Mm-hmm. That seems to me to be particularly poignant in reference to um, uh, Aboriginal and American Indian um, documentation. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, um, um, you just brought up a, a several points there, so maybe I can <laughs> just uh, um, scroll back a bit. So, I mean, first of all, in terms of approaching uh, the archive, I mean, for sure there's this interpretation and this didactic, but I should clarify, like, I came to this project actually uh, already knowing about these documents, and mm-hmm. it was part of my proposal. Um, so the, the project as a whole, um, you know, is a welcome sort of co- context for me to work in. Um, but I had discovered uh, some of this footage uh, a while back, almost two years ago now, and uh, I found it um, almost an imperative um, to to find a way, first of all, to, to I mean, as the videos were clearly in decay and, um, 
you know, without an audience. Um, so just some way of highlighting that these, this material is there. But also, um, it was a, it's a very particular angle, and, and the nation-building factors in. So what, what a lot of this content reveals, um, and a movement in terms of Indigenous people um, that is cross-border. So you see a lot of shifting in terms of concept and identity um, that is um, in some ways beyond the nation-state, and the ways in which if we understand uh, the you know history of the land that that uh, these borders come quite late in terms of history so um, you know and the violent project of maintaining that we can can also see that revealed in these videos so um, I really appreciate the content because it actually um, and and I'm quite deliberate about it because I think it actually really challenges those narratives in some very specific ways and and uh, I think it also but I also had the ear and an eye to um, I mean I'm an organizer and an activist and, and uh, work in solidarity with a number of communities and on front lines in numerous spaces and I I'm um, you know was really conscious more um, more so than maybe a dominant hegemonic kind of was. Um, you know, what is the mainstream structure think about this? And more con- interest and concern, what, what do folks involved in activism now think about this stuff? Because this is a major, you know, this intense and amazing moment in the 70s, especially around the evolution of the American Indian movement, um, but also the language of liberation and the kinds of things that we've become quite cynical in terms of how we take it up now. Um, so to reveal and kind of return to that memory of, of what that was like at that time when it was a sincere um, deeply sincere and deeply, deeply um, uh, felt kind of momentum around some of these ideas, um, especially as we see a resurgence and a, and a clear indication of kinds of revolutionary types of thinking globally, right? And um, uh, it's a particular uh, parallel for me. So, did yeah, you? Are there any? Sense, but... Are there any um, specific uh, pieces of video or documents um, just to give people a bit of more specific context that? Um, you particularly enjoyed or found stimulating to work with? Like anything stand stand out for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, and and uh, the three pieces that jumped to mind immediately. And so one piece is, um, I had mentioned this uh, uh, film called Optic Nerve. Um, and it was, uh, um, you know, it was a West Coast, um, um, L.A., I think, or San Francisco-based group. Um, uh, but um, it's a beautiful piece. And I don't know how they managed to do it because they basically have this set of candid interviews that were done in the context of this uh, county prison in San Francisco. And it's just like some of the you know, very um, astute and wise uh, intakes, especially the women, um, very powerful. And it's a full document and well-edited and in good condition. So one of the ones that um, folks could watch in a whole in the archive now. Um, another piece that, that um, I've watched um, over and over, I have to admit, and it's quite compelling to me, um, is a speech made by Angela Davies that occurred, um, it was actually 1972, though the, the pr- production was in 1973. Um, and uh, she is speaking right after she was acquitted from the Soldad Brothers case, which was the case where she went into hiding in sort of the free Angela Davies moment. It's just after that acquittal, and she's speaking to a huge audience. It's incredibly tense, it's in black and white. She's flanked by bodyguards, and it's this like incredible, incredible speech she does. With this incre- very uh, incredible humility, and that's uh, and it uh, connects to the experiences um, of prisoners, at the, uh, you know, at that time, and does this really like you know we've just begun our struggle kind of moment. And so, love those two pieces. And the last piece I would mention, and that I just can't get over because it's just so um, uh, deja vu. But is the um, protest here locally? Um, it's this piece done by the Alma House. Uh, it was a group home for youth, um, circa 1976. 
and uh, presumably uh, um, very amateur, obviously, filmmakers. Um, you have a narrative voice that's a facilitator, so it sounds like a facilitator type, and who knows who's making the film, but it's um, it's basically documents a protest around the extradition um, um, hearings in Vancouver for Leonard Pelche, which, of course, lost. Um, well, I mean, Leonard Pelche lost. But at the time, this fervent sort of activity, and so you see... Um, you know, uh, iconic, what have become iconic Vancouver sites for protests like the, the art gallery. Um, at that time, um, a predominantly indigenous uh, crowd of people gathered, um, a very specific tone that is hard to imagine happening now. Um, speeches that are quite incredible. Folks, um, throughout these pieces, a lot of the people that appear are, are very iconic, like someone like John Trudell um, speaking in Vancouver and, and uh uh, speech. Um, there's um, a work that I included by Yvonne Wanrao again, which is sort of these iconic figures that we may have forgotten about, or they've been, you know, caught up in the tarnish of time and politics. But um, yeah, so I just, all those three pieces really stand out to me because they just, uh, I just find them almost shockingly um, uh, revealing and compelling. Um, hope other people do too. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you coming uh, on the Arts Report today and, and giving us a little bit of insight into your process. And um, I'm excited to see the work tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. For people who are at home, uh, Vivo Media Arts Center is just on Main Street. Uh, it is artist-run, not-for-profit. It is free, and you can drop by uh, Thursday, November 29th. I believe it's open until 11 p.m.? Yeah, tomorrow night, but it's a, it's a show that actually starts with uh, Marie Ann Hart Baker, um, or sorry, uh, a.k.a. Ann Hart. Um, she's a beautiful poet. She'll be sort of helping me kind of introduce the event, and she's a uh, contemporary of this time and, and was in Minnesota, the rise of the American Indian movement. Um, but, um, yeah, and I just wanted to make sure that folks knew that there's a, a web component, which can be linked through the Vivo mm-hmm. website, which will be up and running in January, and then also a launch of the book, which will be happening with all three programs involved in uh, January and January 24th. So. Great. Well, I will remind people when we get there. And uh, I think that this is a nice We uh, Right before the arts part, we have Snowale. And, you know, uh, it's a, Aboriginal storytelling is, is uh, very fascinating and a beautiful way of remembering. And uh, there also will be an event Saturday, December 1st, uh, another reading with Marie yeah, and Mercedes yeah. and Yes, yeah, so folks are welcome. Um, this is in the, at Gallery Gachet in the mm-hmm. downtown Eastside yeah. community. It's 88 Cordova Street, and um, that's a reading starting at 7 o'clock with uh, Marianne Hart and Mercedes Ng. Um, and the theme of that is looking specifically at this idea of prisons, which maybe, you know, as I revealed, is obviously one of the content and themes that comes out of this program. So, Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining us, Cecily Nicholson. And uh, we uh, look forward to hearing a little bit more about what I thought about everything, as uh, this show is pretty much all about, um, next week. <laughs> right. Thanks so much, Mayo. See you tomorrow, I hope. Bye-bye. All right. We are going to take a break. And when we get back, <coughs> excuse me, when we get back, we will be continuing this theme of archives and memory, uh, learning about Doreen Gray, a.k.a. Lenore Herb. Uh, and her documentation of the punk scene and the poetry scene in the uh, 70s and 80s. And then stick around after the fact for uh, Arts Report Extra, State of Mind, New California Art, circa 1970. Don't you love it when all of these topics spontaneously come together? Though I guess I should be taking credit.
With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hi, everybody. This is Fred Penner, and you are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Now, emerging art. We have uh, the a few uh, very memorable stories coming up from the uh, project that's going on at the Satellite Gallery right now uh, at uh, 560, and uh, that is uh, 560 Seymour Street. And it's Emerging Art Music Poetry, the Vancouver Art Punk Archive of Doreen Gray. Now, Doreen Gray, a.k.a. Lenore Herb, passed away in 2010, and she was best known for uh, being a curatorial, archival, and general cultural dynamo in Vancouver, especially uh, bringing together um, various amazing beat poets. She worked with Bill Bessett for Bloyment Press, and between 1979 to 82, she has an amazing wealth of punk archives. Her archives bring together the punk, poetry, and posters of the era. Of course, CITR was there. You can check out the photos online, or you can check it out at the exhibit through January. Now, uh, this is, as you will hear from the curator, Jamie Clay, uh, as much about Doreen Gray, a.k.a. Lenorb, uh, as it is about the scene itself. So this is not just celebrating the scene as it was, but more uh, celebrating the work of an archivist and of a passionate cultural catalyst. Now, uh, I was looking around for some music to play. Today, we're going to be listening to a little Subhumans and some Dead Kennedys. Uh, Dead Kennedys were presented in Vancouver uh, by CITR. There's a poster there at the stage, at the uh, exhibit. Subhumans were, uh, according to her daughter, who we'll hear from, uh, one of Lenore's favorite bands and house guests. But here we have... Of course, DOA Hardcore 81. Now on YouTube, there is a uh, Doreen Gray account. And you can look at her comments and some of her postings. And so I wanted to uh, give you a little taste of uh, a minute or so of DOA Hardcore 81. Uh, and we will then hear from Jamie Clay, who is the curator of this new archive at 560 Satellite Gallery. Now, you see before you for, um, the biggest goose you'll ever want to meet. Singly, they're known as idiot, but collectively they're known as DOA.
Now, of course, that's not as impressive if you're not watching the video like I get to right now, but I have posted on our Facebook, which is facebook.com, the arts report. Um, so DOA Hardcore 81, as well as documenting years and years, tapes and tapes. And as you'll hear, um, the tapes are all there. It's so strange to watch it. It's not the world that, uh, it's the world that I grew up in a little bit, but it's not the world that most of us occupy now. And so um, why don't we listen to uh get get to know Lenore a little bit more and uh we'll be speaking to her daughter is about 10 years old 9 8 9 10 11 years old so the late 70s early 80s and um my experience of her doing it was that I was I was always there I was dragged along to all the gigs if you know if it was legal if it was if I was legally allowed to be there and and I was you know taken to all the poetry readings and I was exposed to all of this interesting stuff that I didn't find very interesting because I was too young to appreciate it so um, it you know, I could see at that time, I could still see her passion, although I was very young, I was, you know, and I could see what she, what she loved about doing it. Are there any pieces in the exhibition that you remember her being particularly enthusiastic about in terms of any posters or recordings that you remember her speaking about? Well, she really loved the subhumans. I mean, that was probably one of her favorite bands and... I mean, they, everybody was, they were all really nice people. And, you know, when you see them, on, when you saw them on stage, they had this persona of, like, really, they were, like, mean and nasty. And, and you know, being a young kid, I could, I could see both sides. Like, you know, they'd come over to my house and we'd hang out, and it was a really nice experience because they were just always really nice people got to peek behind the mean boy yeah, punk yeah, curtain. Exactly. Yeah, because everybody was just, you know, peep, they were just all people. Do you think Lenore would be enthusiastic about how things were put together today? Because obviously her, one of her passions was making sure that people appreciated what was happening here in Vancouver. Yeah, she, she really coveted her tapes and really wanted the right people to be involved because it was really important for her to make sure that people were respectful of the scene because it wasn't you know it wasn't just it wasn't trashy it was important it was an important part of people's lives and I think she she would really appreciate the show and and how how it's being presented I'm I'm really really proud of how we've done it is there anything else or any message that she might want to put out on the airwaves? I saw out there some shows presented by CITR, so, you know, it's, it's part of our history as well. And I don't know. She was, she was always a rebel and an activist, and, you know, CITR is, has had difficulty over the years with, um, you know, funding and being accepted as something that's needed, and I think that she really related to that and that need for, you know, people to express themselves and that's what CITR is it's a it's a, ve a venue and avenue for 
people to express themselves. And that was Safira Kutz, who is uh, Lenore's daughter, one of her daughters. And uh, in the background, you heard not only the lovely clinks and clunks and of a active uh, show opening, but also Subhuman's Reason for Existence from, uh, I believe, 1982 uh, from the album of the same title. Now, uh, we also got a chance to speak to the curator, Jamie Clay, and he was not only a uh, punker back in the day, he knew Lenore, and he uh, now had the pleasure uh, of bringing together uh, her very uh, extensive archive and bringing out the the juicy jewels. There's video of her uh, that she's done of punk, of poetry, her posters, her tapes, buttons uh, and it really is a snapshot of a time in Vancouver both politically and musically I think she was probably the first person to actually videotape uh, the punk art new wave bands uh, that were emerging in the late 70s 1978 1977 1978 um, there wasn't anybody male or female that was uh, doing any of this. Um, she started out taking photographs of these performances and then she realized that, well, this isn't really capturing the soul of what's going on. So she got involved in um, uh, a local TV station. Back then it was uh, Channel 10. And they had a mandate to uh, train um, people that were interested in, in broadcast. Uh, anyway, so she managed to get some equipment, and then she started uh, to film a lot of these um, performances. And um, it wasn't easy. Uh, back then, uh, the equipment was very um, heavy, very bulky, and needed almost two people to actually um, run these devices because not only were the cameras very heavy, uh, but they had really heavy cables, and then the cables went into another another um, device. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not easy moving around in a mosh pit with, with mm-hmm. one of these bulky cameras. And, and uh, being who she was, uh, she was very forceful. Um, and she made it known that she, in her presence, that she was there to record um, these performances. And um, much of the time, uh, she was sabotaged. People would unplug her camera. People would purposefully uh, push her and so on and so forth. But she was determined to to get the best quality and as much as possible. There is a a particular flavor to what Vancouver had to offer. And then it it seems to overlap quite a bit as this exhibit shows with the poetry that was happening in this time. Her interests were not just punk music, but poetry as well, and what was happening, kind of a punk poetry that was happening in Vancouver at that time. Yes, absolutely. In fact, she got her start um, 
working for something called Blue Ink Press, which was started by a poet named Bill Bissett. And Bill Bissett is, um, you could call him one of really the very first punks um, because his, his uh, type of poetry um, was very revolutionary. Um, for example, everything was lowercase, um, there was no punctuation, and a lot of his words were spelt phonetically. Um, so he made a lot of um, uh, inroads being like that. And um, so Lenore, um, Lenore Herb, a.k.a. Doreen Gray, um, really liked that kind of style, people that push boundaries. Um, and they became fast friends very early on in, in the mid-60s. And um, so not only did she record the punk and new wave uh, music of the day, um, she was also actively involved in um, local poetry, poets such as Bill Bissett and, and uh, such, and Canadian poets, so she's got some beautiful stuff of Margaret, early Margaret Atwood. And of course she brought in uh, the beat poets uh, such as uh, William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg and, and filmed them as well. Um, because these are the people that push boundaries as well. They, they didn't fit into the typical uh, status of, 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 a, of a poet. Uh, they push boundaries, for example. In this exhibition, there's Allen Ginsberg uh, playing uh, an accordion uh, with Gary Kramer, and, uh, which is unusual. Uh, you know, you expect a poet to, s to stand up there and read their poetry, but he's being very animated and, and playing his little... A little accordion and uh, it's quite special. Uh, so Lenore was was very attracted to these types of, of people that would push boundaries and um, and poets did it and uh, the punks did it and hence it also sort of fed into her other passion which was activism. One would think there would be a bit of a tension as it seems you talking about uh, her efforts to document between the punk movement and the punk power and documentation and kind of um, uh, capturing that because it was very much about the energy and about the, the events yeah. and and then again um, putting together an exhibit can you speak a little bit to that tension between kind of the energy of punk and this these types of poetry and the energy of you know curating an art exhibit for people to look right. at yeah it's uh, this is this is a little bit different this is rather special because this is the archive with Lenore Herb, and it's not just the video archive, but it, it's also uh, what she kept, the, the paper, uh, her notes, and so on. So it's more, uh, this particular exhibition is more about the person rather than um, the scene or, or the, the content of. Um, but no, it's true. Um, however, uh, we are now so far removed from punk, you know, it's, it's 40, 35, 40 years and uh, so now we can look back. Um, there's so many publications out there. There's glossy table, tabletop, coffee table books that have these beautiful photos of punks and 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 you know, uh, bloodied and 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 safety pinned and and uh, torn torn clothes and and you know we we've got the advantage of, of time. Uh, but as I say, this, this, this particular show is about her collection and what was special to her. 
and um, so maybe uh, this is kind of shining a light onto an era um, where it was throwaway. Uh, the posters were uh, made in, in uh, cheaply and and put up onto uh, walls and and soon scraped off and washed away and forgotten forever much like the music was not really meant to last everybody was having a good time at the time and and finally we had a place to play yes I was there I'm in some of these bands I'm on some of these posters um, but nobody ever, ever no, nobody thought about the future um, but now it is the future and, and we've got this advantage of, of retrospect and thank, thanks to Lenore for having having the foresight to actually hang on to and, and keep a lot of this stuff so so it, it now becomes historical and yeah that's now you said that you um, you know participated in this this is you know it's maybe less removed for you in terms of the actual um, work and the kind of detris of this era and can you give me maybe a an anecdote of a, a situation where you um, were documented by or interacted with Lenore at the time? Well, there's uh, uh, in the music section of this exhibition. There's there's two areas, um, and then in one area is is the music videos. There's actually an interview that she did with my band. We just opened for the police, and so now we're being interviewed in, in half. In, in the halftime, and we're being interviewed by uh, the, the person that's doing the interview is is a fellow named Dimwit, and he was a, a drummer, and he was he was a big guy and a loud drummer, but he was really a teddy bear at heart, and he loved to do interviews. So he crops up many times when she when Lenore is actually interviewing bands, and he'll suddenly show up and grab the microphone or whisper in, in the ear of the person that's doing the, the interview. Um, so he's actually there doing the interview and she was really proud of this, this particular tape and this particular moment because everything was very special. Uh, we're all very young and we, we've all got silly ideas and uh, Dimwit's there and Dimwit's no longer with us but he was, he was very animated and, and asking really, really pointed questions. And uh, so she, she actually was very fond of that particular interview and that particular tape. That meant a lot to her. And, and sorry, the band name the was? The band was uh, Private School. Private School. I just want to ask you one more quick thing that I noticed when I was looking through the exhibition was that, or rather that I amused about, was that the era that these artifacts are from, the, the era that these, I mean, and they're still living. You can still watch them and touch them. And, but it's... It's something that may not exist again because of the way that technology has gone, documentary right. technology. And uh, CITR just celebrated their 75th anniversary, yeah. and we're actually on the Dead Kennedys poster there, sponsored yes. by CITR, yes. which was awesome. And, you know, we're going through all the old reel-to-reels. Mm -hmm. And so is there any sense um, of, I mean, I'm sure there's a sense of nostalgia, but uh, does anyone miss lugging around those tapes? Like, what is the sense going forward of not being able to have these tapes kind of lined up wall anymore? That creates quite an uh, impact when you see all those uh, tapes lined up on the wall, um, and then you see the, the camera in the glass case. This is uh, similar to a camera that she would have lugged around. It's, it's, it just shows the passion that she had at the time. I mean, this, this, we had no idea that this tiny recorders were, were, would be available 25 years later. 
this is this is the technology of the time. This is the best that we had, um, and this is why it's good to see uh, see what we had back then. Um, what is what is giving us what is left today? So people will say, "Yeah, that's a great video," but they don't realize the the huge amount of effort to get that video to where it is today um, from from that heavy equipment, from those those big boxes. And um, what a statement that that wall makes with all those boxes lined up, all 63 of them. It's just awesome. Yeah, it's funny because... Um, uh, as I say, this is more about her and her collection, and so hopefully people can see that, uh, you know, the dots can be connected for the music and the poetry and her activism and uh, really get a sense of, of, of um, how much she was involved and how passionate she was and and how she hung on to so much material from that era because it was so important um, there's very very few people in town that uh, actually have kept any, anything like this um, so she had the, the, the vision to to um, do this to keep all of this and, and as such it was uh, Hopefully it comes out in the show. I think it does. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for the Arts Report. What a uh, surprisingly coincidental thematic show. And it was really excellent to hear from Jamie about uh, Lenore. You can check out the Vivo Arts... uh, uh, Sorry. You can check out the uh, exhibit at... Um, um, satellite gallery uh, on through January uh, while you were listening in the background there was a little Dead Kennedys and DOA DOA and DOA World War 3 right now I just want to thank everyone who uh, came to the show today and that includes Nicole Kai I also want to thank uh, Ariel Fournier for the photos that you can find on CITR.ca. Jamie Clay, Natalie Lafarnam, Safira Kutz, Cecily Nicholson, and coming up, Arts Extra with Sarah Lapsley, who will be exploring current Morris and Helen Belkin gallery exhibit, State of Mind, New California Art, circa 1970. It'll be on through uh, December 9th. And you're going to get to hear a half hour of interviews, reviews, comment, and music centered on this cool, eclectic collection. Check us out every Wednesday at 5 p.m. CITR 101.9. Music is that you don't like it.